we think that we need to be really assertive and say, you know, hey, dad, you need to start eating better, right? And a lot of us feel that urge to want to shout and we get frustrated and we feel the need to put that out there. When in fact, people don't respond well to that, right? They respond much better to gentler messages. That's Dr. Vanessa Bonds, social psychologist, professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University, and the best-selling author of You Have More Influence Than You Think. And so one of the things that I often recommend is if you want to give someone advice, if you want to ask for something, if you want to influence them in some way, to not start by assuming they're immediately going to push back against you, but to actually start from a position of assuming they would listen to me if I presented things the right way. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're revisiting one of our most popular episodes from the podcast where I sat down with Dr. Vanessa Bonds to discuss the implications of underestimating or overestimating how much influence we believe we have, why facts are often less effective at changing people's behaviors than social norms, and why the most effective leaders view their influence as a responsibility. There's a big difference in the research between people who think about power in terms of opportunity and think about how they can enrich themselves, how they can maintain power, the opportunities that come with having power, even if that's, you know, shaping the direction of your company, right? Which is a great positive thing, but it's still, that's an opportunity. And then there are people who think more about the responsibility that comes with power, that whatever decisions I make in terms of shaping the direction of my company, all these other people's outcomes are going to be impacted by that. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Dr. Vanessa Bonds is a social psychologist, an award-winning researcher and teacher, and a professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University. She's also the author of You Have More Influence Than You Think, How We Underestimate Our Power of Persuasion, and Why It Matters. I began our conversation by asking Vanessa what motivated her to write this book. There are so many books out there on how to gain influence. And, you know, there's all these sort of instructions and tips and tricks and, you know, things you can do better. And it's funny because that message never sort of jived with what I saw as a social psychologist. As a social psychologist who studied influence for over 15 years, you know, I am constantly seeing how much influence people have without even trying, you know, just by being around another person, just by making sort of a throwaway comment, and just by people sort of noticing them and mimicking them. And so it's always been interesting to me that there's such a sort of appetite for these books and seminars on gaining influence when in fact it seemed to me like, you know, we all have it, so why aren't we seeing it? And so the book is really kind of laying out all these psychological biases that prevent us from seeing the influence that we already have and thinking that we need all these tricks and tips. So you wrote this book at the height of COVID. So when everybody was quarantined or everyone went remote, did that influence this book on influence in any way? You know, only in very kind of small ways. So for example, I really was thinking about how our influence is greater than we tend to realize in the context of COVID. And I talk about that a little bit in the book because there were just so many stories out there of 
people going out and, you know, lining up on St. Patrick's Day to get into a bar and going out and, you know, partying in the beaches in Florida. And we would see these stories and it just seemed like the sort of interpretation of those stories was really about, oh, these people are so selfish. They really just don't care about other people. And in the middle of writing the book and being so sort of hyper aware of how we miss the ways that the things we do sort of trickle out and impact so many other people. I was just really thinking that these people are actually not selfish necessarily. They may just have no idea how their actions could potentially impact other people down the road. And one of the things I talk about in the book is behavioral contagion and how, you know, one behavior we do can spread through a community. And so having that in mind, I was really kind of looking at this in a similar way that you know, in the same way, we can sort of miss the way our behaviors can spread a disease. Um, so there's that. And then, of course, now sort of down the road, as we've all shifted quite a bit to remote work, I've been thinking a lot more about that aspect of it. So early on, it was kind of like, ah, we're thinking very disease oriented. And sort of later on, it was more, okay, how has this changed work and conversations and influence through mediated channels? Uh, and in that way, it's kind of shaped my thinking about that as well. In, and in the first chapter of the book, I know you talk about unseen influence, basically stating that we're not as invisible as we think. If you could elaborate on that, and then uh, as you describe, like the invisibility cloak illusion. Sure. So this is a finding by my colleague, Erica Boothby, who's this amazing researcher at Wharton. And she has coined this phrase, invisibility cloak illusion, which basically refers to the idea that as we walk through the world, kind of just going about our ordinary day, you know, you can imagine yourself walking through the park with headphones on or, you know, sitting on the subway, reading a paper. We think that no one's really paying that much attention to us. Right. So we think that we're essentially walking around in an invisibility cloak. And what she's shown is that, in fact, more people are noticing you and noticing the things you're doing, the things you're wearing, your behaviors than we tend to think. So when she's asked people, you know, how many people were looking at you in this particular scene or in this particular moment, people underestimate the number of eyes that were on them. And that's partly because when we catch someone's eye, we have this thing called gaze aversion where we quickly look away. And our assumption is that, oh, they caught me looking at them. But she shows that actually, you know, it's just as likely that you caught them looking at you, but we tend to assume it was the other way around. And that can have all sorts of implications, like I was mentioning about behavior contagion, because if people are noticing the things we're doing more than we realize, that means if they in turn mimic the things we're doing more, they're doing that more than we realize as well. If we're wearing a mask and they notice it, then they may be more likely to put on a mask when they, you know, go into the story we're going into, for example. And I love how throughout this book, it's it's almost like this, whatever you believe, consider the opposite, because then you juxtapose this with the spotlight effect and then the reverse spotlight effect, if you could kind of di differentiate between the two. That's right. So a lot of people, once they first hear about the invisibility cloak illusion, get very uh, paranoid and self-conscious because they think about all the times that they really were hoping nobody noticed something that they did. And they don't want to hear that. Oh, wait a minute. Lots of people saw that. And in fact, that is called the spotlight effect. And that is another phenomenon that was done by a colleague of mine here at Cornell, Tom Gilovich. And that's actually a, a happier sort of story than we may initially think. So the spotlight effect basically says that we think more people are watching us than actually are when it's about something that we are acutely self-conscious about. So for example, if you're having a really bad hair day, if you feel really self-conscious about some style you're trying on, if you stumble and say the wrong word, if you, you know, just do something embarrassing as you're walking around, fewer people are noticing that and seeing that and remembering that than we tend to think. So he looked at this in the context of giving people these embarrassing t-shirts to wear. And he gave them these Barry Manilow concert t-shirts, which now I'm like, that would be a really cool hip thing to wear. <laughs> but he pre-tested it back then and found that most people were pretty embarrassed to be wearing this Barry Manilow t-shirt. And he led them into a room with a group of people and then took them out of the room and said, how many people in that room do you think noticed what was on your t-shirt? And then he asked the actual people in the room, how many of you noticed what was on that participant's t-shirt? And on average, people tended to overestimate the number of people who were paying attention to that embarrassing thing on their t-shirt. 
And so you could say like, how do we reconcile that with what you just told me about the invisibility cloak illusion? And the idea is that when we're kind of going about our ordinary life and not acutely self-conscious about something, then we feel more visible than we actually are. But when we're super self-conscious or embarrassed about something, then we think all eyes are on us and that's not necessarily true. And so Erica Boothby actually teased these two things out by giving people either a new t-shirt, an embarrassing t-shirt like Tom Gillich did, or had them wear their just ordinary t-shirt that they came into a study wearing. And she found that if you were just wearing your ordinary clothes, you thought no one really noticed what you were wearing. If you were given this embarrassing outfit to wear, you thought everyone noticed, right? And they were both errors. So it winds up being this kind of happy medium where you have more impact because people notice the things you do more, but it's not the things that you're worried about people noticing. It's interesting. Later in the book, when you talk about just like our power of persuasion, sometimes when you come away from a conversation, you're doing this postmortem thinking, oh man, this I, I was so awkward. I said these wrong things. You argue that oftentimes we're being unnecessarily harsh on ourselves and that we oftentimes actually make better and less awkward impressions. But how do you know? How do you know when you are when you're being overly harsh versus maybe you were awkward? Yeah. And, you know, as with all findings, you know, it's not 100% of the time this is happening. But in general, it's sort of on average, we tend to be overly hard on ourselves. And so this comes from some data that's also from Erica Boothby, the researcher I mentioned before. And she has this phenomenon she's discovered called the liking gap. And basically what she's done is she has two people interact and they have a conversation of varying lengths. She's done it with shorter conversations, with longer conversations. And then the two people part ways. And she asks one person, you know, how much do you think that other person enjoyed talking to you? How much do you think they liked you? And she asks the other person, how much did you actually enjoy talking to that person? How much did you actually like that other person? And what she finds is that on average, people tend to underestimate how much the other person enjoyed talking to them and liked them. And the idea there is that we tend to do this postmortem after we have a conversation with someone. We remember all those little, you know, gaffes that we made, or maybe we talk too much, or maybe we feel like we talk too little or ask too few questions. You know, we go through all the different things we feel like we might have done wrong. Um, interestingly, the other person is doing the same thing, right? Because we all kind of do this. And at the same time, when we walk away from a conversation, we often are just remembering sort of the gist and the fact that that was just a warm, nice conversation. We're not sort of picking it apart the way we do with ourselves. And so there may be times, sure, where we did make a mistake and we should be aware of those kinds of moments. Um, but on the whole, it's less than we may think. It's fascinating. I was just thinking like, it sounds like the origin story of many like relationships where, I mean, certainly with my wife and I, when we first met, I came away from that first dinner thinking, oh, I, you know, I was goofy and I was this, and I don't know if you'd ever want to have anything ever to do with me again. And, and now being married with two children, it's like, I look back on that and think, oh, maybe I was being unnecessarily harsh. So that's fascinating. So the, there's another situation where you describe, like, I'm, I'm curious, like how much people actually remember what was said versus how they felt. Cause I've, I've heard that like less than, you know, five percent sometimes of people remember from whether it's presentations or even from interactions, but a hundred percent of the feeling, right? That's right. And so, you know, there's this kind of general idea that if we say something wrong, someone's going to jump down our throat and remember it forever and post it on social media and, you know, catch us saying this exact phrase that we feel really uncomfortable with. When in fact, you know, it's not that words don't matter. Of course, words matter, but people don't remember all the words we say the way that we think that they do. In fact, they walk away from conversations and from interactions with other people just with the gist. I mean, if you think about it, if I were to ask you, you know, oh yeah, what did you guys talk about? You would come up with some general themes. Most people aren't going to quote exact quotes and most people are going to really struggle to actually piece that conversation together. But we think that other people's memory is kind of more rote, like they're going to remember every little thing and hold me to everything I say. When in fact, it's much more about conveying sort of general warmth, general opinions, general ideas. When we find ourselves trying to motivate someone or change their mind, we often use facts or logic in attempt to persuade them. But Vanessa argues that we should take a different approach. If you think about the things that actually make you sort of change your mind, it's rarely someone telling you, well, you know, it's this percent more effective to do this and da, 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 da. Most people, what they do is they look around 
at what other people are doing, and then they follow suit. And so this is actually a lot of what you see in the communication going around uh, in terms of vaccination and mask wearing and some of these things, because you'll have these experts come out and give all sorts of facts. And sure, there are some people who, you know, respond to that. But even people who say, okay, that's convincing, if they go back to their community or their family and they look around, and no matter how convincing that was, that fact that they heard was, they look around and see actually no one's following that. No one's doing that, right? That's a lot more persuasive and a lot more influential and shapes your behavior much more than any fact you might have heard. And so this is something actually Bob Cialdini, who's sort of an influenced godfather, has talked about. And he calls it the difference between prescriptive norms, these things that you hear about that you should do, right? And descriptive norms, the things that people are actually doing. So you can see a sign that says recycle or don't litter. And then if you look around and there's litter everywhere and, you know, no one's using the recycling the right way, you just follow what everybody else is doing. The funny thing is when we try to persuade people, we think it's the facts. We think it's, you know, these kinds of prescriptive norms that are really going to shape their behavior. And we forget that those descriptive norms are so powerful. So we might even do sort of the opposite of what Cialdini shows is most effective. So you may see situations where you say, you know, it's really important to get the vaccine. Here's all this data about why you should get the vaccine. No one's getting the vaccine in your community. Not enough people are doing it. And now you've just undermined your entire message, right? You've said it's important to do this, but nobody's doing it. And what are people going to hear? Nobody's doing it, right? That's right. That's right. So then along these lines, it seems like sometimes we react very strongly to opinions and it's almost as if we're being oppressed. And you say that's because sometimes it's just because we feel strongly about an issue. What's what's the root of that? And, and has there, I don't know, it, it, it seems like today and over the last maybe, you know, year or two that this has been more prevalent than it used to be or or has it? You know, I think social media has played a big role in at least the perception that people are kind of shouting at one another constantly. I think in ordinary life, if you actually reflect on the conversations most people have at work, for example, and, you know, at home, most people aren't shouting at each other. And in fact, many of the conversations we have aren't about these sort of hot button topics that we tend to picture when we think of, you know, all this shouting. But one of the things that I talk about is that we think the reason people shout is that they're super overconfident and they think they know what's right. Right. And in fact, there's research showing that we tend to overestimate ourselves in a lot of ways. We think that we're smarter than everybody else. You know, we think we're more moral than other people. We think we're less biased. So we think we have the correct information. And so in some ways, you could say like that could lead to shouting. The interesting piece, though, is that, you know, if we really felt that way and felt like people would hear us on all of that, we wouldn't need to shout. And so there's this other piece where we also underestimate how much people are willing to listen to us. We underestimate how many people notice the things we post on social media. We underestimate how willing people would be to hear an alternative perspective if it was presented in a certain way. And so it winds up being this perfect storm where we think that we're right because we overestimate all these aspects of, you know, how unbiased and moral we are. But at the same time, we feel like we're kind of shouting into the void. We feel like no one's listening to us. And so we wind up raising our voices and being overly assertive in these kinds of contexts. And it's fascinating because it seems like that then compounds uh, if somebody has, let's say, a very different viewpoint, right? They, they just, um, they raise their voice, which then has the opposite effect of actually probably getting less, uh, less people responding or even willing to, to hear that opinion. Yeah. And the research shows, I mean, not surprisingly, that people respond better when they're not getting this sort of overly assertive uh, message, right? When you're actually kind of talking to them in a more neutral tone and you can have a conversation that's not around shouting. Um, and yet we think, for example, in the context of giving advice, right? So even if you take it out of politics and you just think about like giving someone health advice who you'd really like to shape up health-wise, we think that we need to be really assertive and say, you know, hey, dad, you need to start eating better, right? And a lot of us feel that urge to want to shout and we get frustrated and we feel the need to put that out there. Um, when in fact, people don't respond well to that, right? They respond much better to gentler 
messages. And so one of the things that I often recommend is if you want to give someone advice, if you want to ask for something, if you want to influence them in some way, to not start by assuming they're immediately going to push back against you, but to actually start from a position of assuming they would listen to me if I presented things the right way. And so that stops you from going in, just expecting this pushback and coming in way too hard into that conversation. And, and actually on this note, so I, I know you talk about this in a later chapter about that most people they don't like asking for things because they have this assumption that the person on the receiving end will say no. But then you argue that, you know, how we imagine someone's going to respond is oftentimes very different from how they actually tend to respond. I, I'd love to hear what, about some of your research in this. Sure. And, you know, it's funny, this whole line of research stemmed from an experience I had in graduate school where I was doing a survey study with a professor there. And I had to go down to Penn Station and ask people to fill out a questionnaire. And I would have to go up to people and say, you know, hey, we filled this questionnaire over and over, like hundreds of people. And it was just the worst. I hated doing this. And part of the reason was that in my head, you know, each time I approached someone, I expected the worst. I expected them to get really mad at me. I expected them to definitely say no to me, you know, and possibly even yell at me or I don't even know. But there was something in my head that this was like going to go really badly. And in fact, what I discovered was that people were quite, you know, kind and warm and willing to help me out much more than I expected. Not everybody, but if they didn't, they were quite polite about it. And in fact, I found that, you know, more than half of the people I asked wound up saying yes. And so I found this disconnect between sort of the way I expected this interaction to go and the way those interactions actually went to be so fascinating that I started to do research in that area. And so Frank Flynn, the professor I was working with at the time, and I brought participants into our lab and we had them do the same thing I was doing. So we had them go out and ask people for things. And we had them ask people for all sorts of things, you know, to fill out surveys, to borrow their cell phone. Um, in later work, I even had them ask for all sorts of, you know, kind of wacky or even unethical things like vandalizing library books. And what we found was that in general, people thought like, of course, people are going to say no, they're not going to want to help me out. They're not going to be willing to do this unethical thing. They're just not going to say yes. And again and again, our participants were surprised by how many people actually agreed to these requests. And so at this point, we've had our participants ask over 15,000 people these kinds of requests. And across the board, they overestimate the likelihood of rejection by about twice as much. Um, so it really does seem in, you know, taken together with some other research as well, it really does seem that people are inclined to agree. And the harder path is saying no. The harder path is coming up with the words to tell someone no in the moment. And, and this even extends to, because I know there's, there's, there's this idea that if I offer somebody some sort of financial incentive, that that will improve the likelihood of them fulfilling this request. But you argue that that actually only helps us feel more comfortable about making the request. That's right. And this comes down to sort of our explanation for why people do things, right? So we tend to think when I ask someone to do something, if they don't want to do it, they'll just say no. And so what I need to do is sweeten the ask in some way and make them actually want to do it. What we find is that in many cases, people don't agree to do things because they want to. They agree to do things because it's so hard to say no, because someone's standing there in front of you asking you for a favor or asking you to do something. And to say no to them would make the whole interaction awkward. It would insinuate something negative about that other person. You know, it just would be uncomfortable. You have to find the words to do that. And so if that's the reason people are agreeing, it doesn't matter if you offer them money to get them to agree, right? That doesn't, because that's not the reason. They're not assessing the benefits and the costs of saying no or saying yes. What they're really doing is in the moment, just kind of reacting almost mindlessly and going along with the thing because it's just easier to get it over with and just say yes. Um, so yeah, so when we ask for something, many of us, our inclination is to be like, you know, will you take me to the airport? I'll give you gas money. Or, you know, can I ask you for this favor? I'll give you a dollar for it. Um, but in fact, that helps us feel better. It makes us think people are going to be more likely to say yes, but it actually, in our studies, doesn't change the actual compliance levels. 
And, and on the note, because I know you state that it's hard for people to say no, and oftentimes this is because they'll feel awkward or embarrassed. If you could speak to uh, insinuation anxiety. Yeah. So this is one of my favorite terms, insinuation anxiety. It was coined by my colleague Sunita Saw here at Cornell. And she looked at it in the context of basically telling someone, you know, disclosing that I get paid, for example, to promote this particular medicine, but I'm still going to recommend it to you, but I just want to disclose this to you. And what she finds in these cases is that, for example, a patient in that kind of case doesn't actually take that information and not want that medicine because they realize that, you know, the doctor is getting a cut from it. Instead, they worry about insinuating that that doctor might not be genuinely prescribing what they think is best. And so it actually makes them more likely to go ahead and go with that medication, even knowing that disclosure, right? So there's a lot of talk about, well, disclose something so that everyone has all the information they need to make the best decision. But often in those cases, disclosing something makes someone so anxious about insinuating something negative about that person that you might not be, you know, suggesting the best treatment, that it has the opposite effect. And so this kind of idea plays into so many other interactions, including interactions like if someone came up to you and asked for your phone, right? We have this immediate reaction of, uh, what's this person going to do with my phone? Can I trust them? Are they going to run away with it? Are they going to, you know, make some weird long distance call that, you know, racks up my charges or something? And as much as all those things are worries that go into our head, another big worry that keeps us from saying no is insinuating that stuff about the other person suggesting that they're not trustworthy, suggesting that they might run off with your phone. And that's just as painful to do. And so that often causes us to just hand over our phone or do something that we don't necessarily want to do because we don't want to insinuate the other person shouldn't be asking for it. Now, in this chapter, I'm going to use like a couple of phrases, which if, if you're open to defining, but I, I found it very interesting. So in situations where you have, let's say like the bystander effect or with diffusion of responsibility or even with pluralistic ignorance, I'm curious, like what differentiates like the people who just are observing versus the ones who actually step up and act? Because it seems like the majority are less likely to act. That's right. And so the bystander effect is basically this finding where when something's happening, for example, classic studies have like smoke come into a room. So clearly there's something wrong, like a room is filling up with smoke. Other studies have someone who is hurt or acting like they're hurt on you know, the side of the road or on a sidewalk. And they look at how many people actually intervene and try to help that person or you know, tell someone there's smoke filling up the room. And what the research shows is that the more people who are around, right, the more bystanders in a situation like that, the fewer will actually intervene. And there's a lot of explanations for that. So the classic explanation is called diffusion of responsibility. And that's the idea that if you have a bunch of people, no one person is especially responsible for, you know, acting and helping that person or telling the experimenter that there's, you know, smoke in the room. And so, you know, no one really takes that responsibility, and so fewer people actually act. Um, another explanation is called pluralistic ignorance. And that's where everyone's sitting around or standing around noticing this thing. But because nobody else is acting, you assume that everybody has kind of decided that they don't need to act, right? Even if everybody internally is like, oh my God, someone's got to do something. We only see people's external, you know, expressions and behaviors. And so we assume that everything's fine, right? And so the explanation I actually prefer compared to all of those, because I think it really explains those situations better, is this one that was offered by John Sabini a number of years ago, which is that at the end of the day, it's embarrassment that keeps people from acting in those situations. It's sort of the social risk. There's also sometimes a physical risk in these situations, but a lot of it is the social risk that if everyone's sitting around acting normal and I'm the one who gets up and says like, oh my God, there's a fire. And then it was actually, there it wasn't really a problem. It's going to be so embarrassing, right? I, I just am not sure. There's enough ambiguity in that situation. And so we don't act out of a fear of embarrassment. 
and again, I, I don't mean to make this political. I'm just, I'm curious as, as, as an immigrant myself, whose family immigrated and we were refugees that came over from a communist country. It, it almost seems like that this is how like these, you know, almost like oppressive societies develop because of just no one says anything and no one does anything. And, and, but I am curious, like the ones who do say something, like, what is it about that, that compels them to do it where the majority do not act? Yeah. So, I mean, different people have different theories about what actually compels somebody to act. So, for example, one theory that uh, my colleagues who recently wrote a book, Jay Van Bavel and Dominic Packer, have talked about a social identity. So, for example, there's studies showing that people will help someone who is like wearing a shared team identity. And they've done this actually with soccer slash football, European football, where someone wearing a Manchester United jersey, right, if they're the one kind of laying on the ground and they need help, and I am a Manchester fan, I'm more likely to help them. So like I've identified with that person. I feel like, you know, it's my responsibility because we're part of the same group. In some cases, it's actually people who are in higher positions of power. So research has shown that power can cause a lot of negative things, but it can also cause a lot of positive things. And so the sort of common denominator that power does is it makes people more likely to act in situations, especially situations of ambiguity, right? And so that can be bad in some cases, but in this case, people who in higher positions of power are more likely to actually act and say something to the experimenter or help out in a situation like that. And, and speaking of power, because this there's a whole chapter dedicated to this. Most of the listeners of this podcast are are leaders within their own organizations. How do you define power? Is it a correlation between power and authority? Or like, I guess, like, what, what's your definition of this? Yeah. So usually in my field, the classic definition of power is that you have control over resources. And the reason that they use that kind of definition is to differentiate it from status, where all you have is respect. Right. And they both can have sort of similar effects. But in one case, you actually control other people's resources. It could be because you're in a position of formal hierarchy. It could be for some other reason. Um, but that is the basic idea that like I control the resources and so I am the one in power. And, and, and those in power, you argue, they don't oftentimes like bow down to the same kind of like social pressures and, and, and concerns that you, you kind of discuss throughout the book. Um, why is that? That's right. So there's some interesting psychological effects of having power that have been documented. And a couple of them are, for one, people in positions of power tend to be less likely to take other people's perspectives. And when you think about that, it's really just a matter of uh, practical concern, right? If I control the resources, as I said, that's how they define power, right? I don't need to figure out so much what motivates other people because I'm the one who has the resources. If you're in a low power position, you really want to understand like what motivates that higher power person so that you can find a way to get access to those resources. But if I'm in a high position of power and I make a comment and it, you know, hurts someone's feelings, it doesn't matter as much if I am in a lower power position and I hurt a higher power position's feelings. And so we're less likely to sort of take people's perspective and that makes us less worried about saying things, blurting things out, you know, how our words might impact other people. And another aspect of that is that we tend to experience fewer situational constraints. And so there's a classic study where people who are primed to feel power, they do that by just having you remember a time that you had, you were in a position of power. They were sitting in a chair and there was a fan blowing on them and it was really annoying. And it was ambiguous whether you were allowed to move that fan. And people in positions of power would just go ahead and move it right? People who had recalled this time that they had power, people who recalled the time they didn't have power would just sit there and kind of deal with the fan because it was ambiguous. They weren't sure if they could do that. And so people in positions of power kind of feel like they don't have to worry so much about what other people think. They don't have these situational constraints. And in the end, what happens is they extend that to their impressions of other people. And if someone else doesn't move that fan, they're like, why did you just sit there? Right? Why didn't you move that fan? And forget that not everyone is lacking in those constraints. Yes. I, I want to elaborate on this because, you, you know, the leaders that those that have power, I think sometimes we have this false belief that, well, we may be free to do what we want to do, that others are also similarly free. And that I think can, can cause a lot of blame and, and so on. Like, how would you suggest leaders navigate that? That's right. And it's interesting because, as I said, you know, you kind of overextend that feeling that I don't have these constraints to other people not having those constraints. And so there's some interesting research by Pam Smith and her colleagues looking at how if I'm in a position of power 
and I'm assessing whether someone who was late to a meeting because they got stuck in traffic is responsible for being late to that meeting. People in positions of power are more likely to say, yeah, that's your fault and your responsibility. The situation that you you had no control over, right? A traffic jam. But if I'm in a position of power, I just assume like you can handle a situation. You don't have these situational constraints. I'm going to blame you for being late for something you couldn't have actually, you know, prevented. And people in positions of low power are more likely to say, okay, that was a situational constraint. They couldn't have done anything about that. And so one thing is just to be aware of that right? To sort of know that that is a bias that we tend to have when we're in positions of power, that we over sort of attribute agency to people who might not always have agency. And then also to sort of try more actively to take the perspectives, or we can talk later about the difference between taking perspectives or getting the perspective of other people, but really to try to get insight into other people's constraints, other people's concerns, other people's reactions to things we say in situations that they're in, be, and sort of recognize that when we're trying actively to figure that stuff out, we're often wrong because we're basing it on our privileged position of being in power, right? And so we often make these mistakes trying to understand what someone else is experiencing in that situation. So I read something interesting. I'd love to hear your perspective on this. And someone was saying essentially that those that are in power, for them, when they are vulnerable and they exude vulnerability, that actually is seen as a leadership strength and it builds connections and it creates more authenticity. But someone who is not in a position of power, when they're vulnerable, it comes across as weakness. So I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on that from an influence perspective? Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Again, if you're in a position of power, you know, people are looking to you. You control their resources, their outcomes, and they want to know that you're going to do it in a way where you're actually taking their outcomes, you know, into consideration. And one big worry about power is that people are so focused on enriching themselves and maintaining their own power that they're not actually thinking about the people who, you know, they're in charge of. And so there's a big difference in the research between people who think about power in terms of opportunity and think about, you know, again, how they can enrich themselves, how can they can maintain power, the opportunities that come with having power, uh, even if that's, you know, shaping the direction of your company, right, which is a great positive thing, but it's still, that's an opportunity. And then there are people who think more about the responsibility that comes with power, that whatever decisions I make in terms of shaping the direction of my company, all these other people's outcomes are going to be impacted by that. And I think, as you're saying, you know, when you're in a position of power and you show this kind of vulnerability, it kind of suggests that I am willing to kind of think about you and care. And it suggests that there's going to be this sort of pro-social understanding and responsibility that you're taking for other people's outcomes and this awareness that your power has this element of responsibility as well. Yeah, on a previous podcast, I think it was with Henry Cloud, we were talking about leadership and and I said, I cannot for the life of me understand why anyone would want to be a leader. And and the implication here is I think if you view it as a status game, like it could seem appealing, you could see it as like a career path to, uh, to, to whatever it is that someone may believe that they're looking for. But when you actually truly understand the responsibility that comes with leadership, and I know you, or you argue this in the book as well, sometimes the prospect of having this power becomes less appealing. That's right. And there's research that shows that as well, that when you remind people that, you know, we're going to make you the leader of this team. And one of the things that comes with being the leader of the team is this responsibility. You're going to have to determine how resources are allocated to the rest of the group, right? Who's going to get however much money or whatever it is. And all of a sudden, once you remind people of the responsibility that comes with leadership, they're like, you know, that doesn't sound so great after all. And what would you recommend to someone who's listening to this podcast? Let's say they're in a leadership role. How can they become more aware of the impact that they have on their team? I think a big aspect is actually getting input from your team. So as we were kind of talking about earlier, as much as we want to sort of understand how other people are feeling around us, right? 
it's really hard for us to do that by staying in our own heads, especially when we're in a very different position from another person. If we're in a position of power, we just assume that there's different kinds of constraints in the world. So when we try to understand why someone else is doing what they're doing or what they're feeling or what they're thinking about something we said, we're coming to it through this egocentric perspective of what we're used to, what our constraints are. And so we're going to have a lot of sort of misperceptions about what someone else is thinking. And the only way to get past those misperceptions is actually to hear from the people that you're curious about, right? To ask them questions. Sometimes that means asking them questions in, you know, anonymous surveys that make it really easy for them to open up if they're not comfortable sharing with you. Sometimes it just means taking up less of the space in the room, right? Not being the first one to speak when you ask a question, you know, not giving your opinion first. Having everybody go around the room if you're in a meeting and express their opinion, not just letting the people who speak most often are most comfortable speaking or have opinions that are closest to yours because they want you to be happy to be the ones who are dominating the discussion, but actually to elicit these conversations and this input from people who don't ordinarily speak up. And that's where you get this new information you might not have been privy to otherwise. Encouraging collaboration amongst team members is a great way to make progress but only if leaders are able to set aside their egos. I asked Vanessa to elaborate on the differences between leaders who view their influence as a responsibility versus those who are more motivated by status or authority. Yeah, there's actually a fair amount of research showing that they do lead quite differently, that they do consider the perspectives and the impact of the decisions they make on the people below them or the people whose responsibility they you know, have for. And so they do things like, they allocate resources more fairly, right? So they actually consider like how might giving this person a raise or a bonus, you know, impact the dynamics of the team. They get more input and they actually listen to that input. And so they really are considering sort of in every decision they make, how that decision is going to impact the other people on that team and not just them and not just the company. And I know you mentioned this briefly earlier, but there's there's three steps that you lay out for people to better understand their own influence um, over others. If you could kind of elaborate on those three, maybe break them down. Sure. So one of them is getting better at seeing our influence. And that really comes from this idea that simply by virtue of being human and having two eyes on the front of our faces, right? When we look out into the world, we see how everybody else is impacting us and the things they're doing that annoy us or make us happy. We're seeing how everybody else is impacting one another. But the thing that's missing from that scene when we look out at it is what we're doing, right? We don't actually see ourselves behaving. We don't see the facial expressions we're making. We don't see how people are reacting to us necessarily. And so one of the big suggestions I make is finding ways to do simple exercises where you get out of your own head and sort of visualize scenes and interactions from a third-party perspective. And it could be as simple as a visualization exercise where you basically picture yourself as a fly on the wall or picture yourself in a movie or on TV and kind of just imagine, okay, this is what this scene would look like to someone else. Or you could imagine, you know, what would a friend say? Or if a friend was in this situation, how would you advise them? Sort of, again, taking this third-party perspective. I was talking to someone who works with coaches. And one of my favorite suggestions, although this is more elaborate, was that, you know, coaches, athletic coaches are really into tape. They love taping their players and showing them the tape and showing them all the behaviors that they can improve on. But they don't tape themselves, right? And so this person who works with helping coaches improve will tape the coaches and then play back that tape and show them, you know, look at these things that you're doing that your players are responding to. And it's just a way we don't usually think about things. So even if you're not actually taping yourself, thinking about it in that way, right? Thinking about what if I was taping myself, what am I doing? So that's one is seeing your influence more. The second one is something that we've talked about a little bit already, and that's getting perspective, right? And so this comes from the idea that if we are going to truly understand how our behaviors impact somebody else, we have to know not just the fact that we impacted them, but how did it feel when we did that, right? How did they actually truly feel about whatever it was we said or did? And to do that, we have to get out of our own heads. We can't just imagine what they must have felt. 
because we're motivated to hope they felt a certain way. You know, we might have felt a different way than they do. And so it really involves asking them, getting outside input to truly understand how our words impact others. And then the third one is experiencing our influence. And so that one is actually tricky because people think, okay, that's the big one. Let's do that. You know, let's just test out our influence and see it. But first of all, there are ways that we impact people negatively that we don't want to test out. And we need to find ways to recognize that without actually trying it out. And also, as we talked about, you know, the way we interpret experiences is not always the way other people do. We also misremember a lot of our experiences. So we talked about, you know, being rejected less than you imagine. But when we are rejected, that's what we remember. And so we kind of think that we're always going to be rejected because that's what we remember. So I'd say, you know, experiencing your influence is testing out little things, asking for things, seeing if people agree, but also reflecting on them and kind of using these other strategies, trying to see things from another person's perspective, get into someone else's head and get information from another person's perspective, in addition to sort of testing out your influence. And it also seems like we, we could all be a bit more grateful, or at least we all fall short to some degree in conveying our gratitude. I know you, you cite a study where they had participants send um, nice letters to important people in their lives. And they said, uh, you asked them how they thought that would make the recipient feel, but they significantly underestimated how it actually made the recipient feel, which was much, much better than they'd even anticipated. That's right. And so that's actually one of my favorite sort of suggestions for experiencing your influence because the research on that, so we have we have a study where we had people give compliments to other people and they guessed how good those compliments would make someone feel. And they underestimated just how good those compliments would make someone feel. And in fact, they thought that the person might be kind of annoyed at being stopped and bothered and complimented. Uh, and some other researchers have shown that this effect doesn't go away even if you compliment people again and again and again. And also that this also works for bigger things, as you mentioned, like gratitude. So writing a letter of gratitude to someone who's helped you along the way means so much more to them and they appreciate it so much more than we think. And that's one of the ways that's so simple that we can sort of test out our influence and see that it actually does have a big impact on other people. And that's a way that we know from lots of research is going to be very positive and more positive than we tend to think. And, and across the board, I mean, even throughout this book, I, I feel like the undertone is just perhaps gaining a heightened level of self-awareness. And it just all, all throughout, and it seems very, very important. I mean, not just for the individual reading the book, not just for leaders, but almost society as a whole. What's kind of the implication of having higher levels of self-awareness? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the word I like to use, and it's basically the same idea, is mindful, being more mindful of the ways in which we are impacting people all the time. I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about early on, that we're so focused on the ways that we need to gain influence the ways that we're doing things wrong, you know, the things that we're, we're just so hard on ourselves, like, oh, I messed that up. I wasn't influential enough. I need all these tips. But if you kind of take from this book that actually feel better about that stuff, I want people to feel reassured. And rather than feeling like I need more, 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 to think about being mindful of what you're already doing, what you're already putting out there. Because it's possible that you already are having a really big impact, but it's not in the direction that you want it to be in. Maybe, you know, it's not as positive as you'd like it to be. Or maybe you're holding back because you don't realize that simple little things can actually have a big impact. And so I think that's why it's so important to sh make this shift from worrying about all that we don't have to being mindful of what we actually do have in terms of influence. And, and for those listening that are thinking, how do I grow my influence? I know there's a study you also mentioned in regards to social media. Uh, I think it was talking about Twitter or something where the median Twitter account has something like 60 followers that if you have over a thousand followers, you're in the top 4% so that we should always kind of round up in terms of what we think our following is. That's right. I love this. So just like we talked about the invisibility cloak illusion, there's something called the invisible audience on social media. And when you ask people how many followers they think they have compared to the average person and how much influence they have compared to the average person, we all think that we are below average, right? But in fact, we have more followers than usually the median person. I shouldn't say average because you've got, of course, these people with like tons and tons of followers. The problem is that we compare ourselves to those people, those people with tons and tons of followers, and don't realize that actually compared to most people, 
we're doing much better than we realize. And we tend to base, you know, the amount of attention and the amount of influence of our posts on likes and engagement and things like that. When in fact, many more people see what we post than actually engage with it. And so we tend to underestimate quite a bit, you know, that invisible audience that's out there. And, and for someone who's listening to this and they're thinking, guys, it sounds great, but I want to be true to myself. I want to say what I want to say. I want to feel what I want to feel. At what point would you say, hey, maybe take a take a breath or take a moment to consider how that will influence other people? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think there's definitely a place for being authentic, you know, and, and people appreciate that. But I think it's being authentic and mindful, right? So it's like, this is what I want to say. Now let's take a moment to try to think about how that might impact other people if I said that. And also another place is making sure that the things we say are, you know, basically accurate, basically factual Often we don't vet everything that we put out there, especially on social media, and more people see those things than we tend to realize. And so those can have a bigger negative impact, unfortunately, than we tend to realize. And so it's sort of good to be mindful of the fact that it's not just a couple people who are seeing what you put out there, but actually it's many more than we tend to think. Yeah. A leadership lesson that I learned a a while ago was just that, you know, I would ask myself before going into, let's say, a a meeting or or a meeting with the entire team. And I would ask myself, is what I'm about to say, who is it for? Is it for me to feel better about getting something off my chest or is it to help to influence the team in a positive direction? And oftentimes it was actually just about me and me wanting to like, you know, say my piece. And that was probably in a level of like leadership immaturity. And as I matured, I started to realize, well, pretty much everything that I should say should be for the benefit of others. Because if I'm saying it just to benefit me, then there's really, there's no positive impact that's happening from this. Yeah, I just think that's such a wonderful sort of way of making a decision about whether something should be said. And, you know, I I got through the book without using the Spider-Man quote, but I still (laughs) like to pull it out from time to time. Uncle Ben, yes. (laughs) That with great power comes great responsibility, right? And so if we have all this influence, you know, it does come with responsibility. And I think that is part of uh, what we need to take away from this. So, so Vanessa, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? I think it is a willingness to sort of constantly reflect and try to improve. And sometimes that means not always pushing forward. I think it also comes with sort of the confidence of pulling back sometimes, right? So one of the takeaways from the book is that, you know, yeah, you have more influence than you think. So you can use it a whole bunch more, right? Or you can actually recognize that there are some situations where you want to pull back and use it less and make space for other people's voices and kind of maybe not ask for certain things that might put people in uncomfortable situations. And I think that that is a really amazing, important skill to learn. And that, you know, is something that is unique that a lot of people aren't able to do. I hope you enjoyed revisiting this episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with our guest, Dr. Vanessa Bonds, and have gained new insights from our timeless conversation. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691, and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Dr. Vanessa Bonds, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com. 